Well, good morning. It's really great to be here. Uh, like Lance said, I grew up here, kind of literally. So I found this picture a couple days ago. Um, this is me with a hat, circa 1990, I think. Um, so yeah, my dad was the pastor here. Uh, we came on Saturdays and cleaned the church, and I mowed the lawn, and I slept on some of those pews that you're sitting in, and I turned those little rubber things inside out and wore them like rings and all of that stuff when I was a kid. Um, so this, you guys are really challenging my belief that a church is not a building um, because I just feel something very special about being here. In some ways, this building feels more like home than anywhere else in the world. So, um, but I do believe that uh, the church is a people and not a building. And the building didn't send us to Cameroon, you guys did, and you guys support us, and I'm just so thankful uh, for all of you and for Lance, who, if it wasn't for Lance, I wouldn't have gone to Masters, I wouldn't have met Stacy. I wouldn't be in Cameroon. So God really used this church, used Lance, uh, to, uh, to change my life, and I'm very thankful. So thank you for letting me be here today. Um, we were sent out from here, we came here back in 2011 and told you guys we wanted to move to Cameroon. Um, Cameroon is in West Africa. Uh, West Central, and uh, we wanted to go there because we wanted to help the Kwakum people uh, have the Bible in their own language. And uh, so back in 2014, we moved in, and right away, we figured out that there are enormous barriers to the Kwakum people knowing the Word of God. And so when we moved in, uh, one of the first things we figured out is that they didn't have any written language at all. So we moved into this house, and we started meeting with people. We started learning their language so we could speak it. We started figuring out how to write it down, and uh, we wrestled through that barrier. And about five-ish years ago, we were able to help the Kwakum create the first writing system they've ever had, uh, which was really exciting, and it also meant we could now start translating the Bible. And so uh, we have two teams, two teams of Kwakum people that we translate the Bible with. This is my team. We are the drafting team. So we wrestle with the text and try to get it into its first draft in Kwakum. And Stacy's team is the team that does the testing. So they go out and make sure we did a good job. And it's, uh, it's, it's been an amazing process as we've started. We started with Old Testament stories and we've just taken out a bunch of different stories that we've translated to give the people an overview of the Old Testament. And we've done about 25 of them. We've gotten through the Exodus uh, story. So that's where we're at. When I meet with my team, uh, I have to do a lot of pre- preparation ahead of time. And then I, I spend most of our time is spent just trying to understand the text. Uh, there's a principle in, in translation. You can't translate something you don't understand. And so we sit there and we wrestle and we talk about the text, we talk about, we draw pictures, we, we, we act things out, we do everything we can to understand what the Word of God says. And over and over and over again, while I'm doing this with my team, my guys look at me and they just say, why in the world did God do that? Over and over again, we're translating these stories. Why, why did it happen like that? Some of their, their questions are just normal questions that I think we all have at some point or another, if we're honest. Um, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? You know, that's, that's a big, if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have sinned and things would be a lot better. Um, some of their questions come from cultural, it's, it's a cultural barrier. So they ask questions I would have never asked. So when we got to the story of Jacob and Esau, why did God um, bless Jacob in the end instead of Esau? Esau was the older brother. That's never concerned me. But Kwakum culture, I think, is similar to Jewish culture in that they tend to uh, see the most responsibility going on the oldest son. 
And so for them, that was hard. And if you read through the Bible, it's, it's I don't know if it's ever the oldest brother. You know, it's always one of the younger brothers. You know, you got David, uh, even Judah, um, you know, was chosen uh, as the one through whom Christ would be coming through. And so they struggle with that because of their culture. Um, and they also struggle with, with some things just because they've been taught very poorly. So if you were to come to Cameroon, if you knew what they looked like, you might be surprised at how many churches there are. This is a picture of one of the churches. Uh, pretty much every Kwakum village, there's around 20 of them, has a church, if not more than one. And uh, that might be surprising because you've, you know that I'm a missionary to the Kwakum people. Well, Stacy and I made it our endeavor uh, on our first term to visit pretty much every one of these churches. And we went to, I mean, I don't know, 30 churches total over the course of a couple of years and never heard the gospel. Uh, what we heard instead is what's known as the prosperity gospel. You might have heard of it as the, the health and wealth gospel. So the prosperity gospel starts with truth. It says that God is, is rich. He has unlimited resources. He's also good and he's also generous. And all of those things are completely true, right? Um, but then it goes a little bit further and says, so therefore, God's good, rich, generous. If you do what God wants, he will make you healthy and he will make you wealthy, which is a really cool sounding uh, message. Um, basically, it says, if I follow this list, my pastor gives me a list, literally, in some churches, they would write out a list on the chalkboard. If you do these things, you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy. And it sounds great because it's like, all I have to do is this list of things and I can be healthy and wealthy. But the problem is, it's not true. And so, because it's not true, it never leads to godliness. And so, in all these churches, they're full of people that are either proud because they are healthy and wealthy, which usually just the pastors, and they say, because I'm healthy and wealthy, clearly I'm godly. Or the people are completely desperate and depressed because they're poor and sick. And they, they're saying, I've been doing this whole list of things that you told me I'm supposed to do, and I'm still poor and I'm still sick. And prosperity theology has no answer to that. So they're desperate and sad and depressed and angry. And into this wrong and broken and exploitative system, we've started translating the Old Testament. And again, the Old Testament is just confronting their ideas of who God is and of how God works. One of the probably most impactful stories has been the story of Joseph. So I want you to take a second and just try to imagine yourself. The only thing you know of Christianity is that the prosperity gospel. And now you're hearing the story of Joseph for the first time. Joseph was a young man who did what his father asked him. His father asked him to spy on his, his other brothers and to tell them if they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. Their father, his, their father loved him a little bit more than the other brothers. And because of that, his brothers wanted to kill him. And they would have killed him, but they decided to sell him into slavery. He didn't do anything wrong, but this bad thing happened to him because of jealousy. He gets sold into slavery. He goes and works in Potiphar's house, and he works really hard and does a good job and is trustworthy, so much so that Potiphar gives him authority, elevates him. But then he ends up in prison. Why does he end up in prison? It's not because he did anything wrong. He was being faithful. He even fled from the temptation of lust, and yet he ends up in prison. That doesn't make sense in the, in the prosperity gospel system. In prison, he works really hard and is really honest and is faithful, and the prison uh, warden raises him up to a point of authority in the prison. But then he interprets a couple guys' dreams and tells the guy that lives not to forget him in prison, and he just forgets him in prison for years. 
Again, from the prosperity gospel, this doesn't make any sense. You've got a, a godly man doing what God wants, but he's not getting the riches and the health that he's supposed to get. So then at the end of the story, you're, right, you're like, well, okay. Well, at the very end, he's risen out of prison. He uh, interprets the dreams for Pharaoh, and he's brought into a position of authority. He's basically like the king in Egypt. But what did God bring him out of slavery, bring him out of prison for? Raise him to a 34. It was to save the oppressors that sold him into slavery in the first place. That's not the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is you getting elevated over all those unrighteous people. And God elevated Joseph to save people who were unrighteous. That doesn't make any sense in the, in the system of prosperity. And so as we're wrestling through this with my team, trying to understand it so we can translate it, my team over and over and over again are just saying, why? Why is this happening? Why is he enduring this suffering? Why is God allowing this to happen? And one of my translators said, this is not the God that we have been taught. I wonder if you've ever felt like them, though. Ever been reading in the Bible, reading something that God did, or experiencing something in your own life and just thought, why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this to happen? If that's a question you've ever had or felt or expressed, you're actually in good company. Not only the Kwakum, but even biblical authors have asked that question. And as I was doing my devotions during this time in Cameroon, I was reading through the book of Habakkuk, uh, which I hear you guys have been going through, which is pretty neat. And uh, in the book of Habakkuk, I saw a man, Habakkuk, who asked these same kind of questions, and he got answered by God. And so we're going to take a look at this today. We're going to do kind of an overview of Habakkuk. We're not going to look at a lot of specifics, but I just want you to see this message that I think Habakkuk was learning about who God is and how God works. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Habakkuk, we're just going to start with the very first verse. Habakkuk 1.1, simple verse, says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. In Kwakum, Habakkuk's kind of a weird name. They've never heard it before. They don't know what an oracle is or a prophet. So even though it's a very simple verse, it's kind of a, a complex verse. And I wonder how much I understood about it. I don't really usually use the word oracle. What is an oracle? An oracle is really just a message. So uh, Habakkuk received a message. Uh, who is Habakkuk? He's a prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks for God. So Habakkuk received a message from God that he was supposed to speak uh, as the prophet of God. It also says he saw this oracle. So it was probably some sort of a vision, not just something he heard, but something he saw as well. Uh, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk other than the fact that he was a prophet. We know he lived in the kingdom of Judah during the divided kingdom period. So there were two kingdoms of Israel at the time. The northern kingdom they called Israel, southern kingdom they called Judah. At some point in history, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, had just continued to live in idolatry and sin. And God sent Assyrians in. They took him into captivity. The southern kingdom, and, and that's where Habakkuk lived, had seen that happen. It had happened about 100 years before what we're reading right now. And so they knew that if you seek out idols and you don't worship the true God, that this is the sort of thing that happens. Uh, but they continued to, they decided to follow the same pattern as the northern kingdom. They worshiped idols. Uh, there was all sorts of, of sin. And here we've got Habakkuk, a prophet of God, a righteous man, who's living in Judah and he's looking around him and he's seeing what the state of Judah was at that time. And let's read what he was seeing, starting in verses, verse 2. It's not moving. Can you? There we go. Okay, verse 2, it says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? 
Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. So the or for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So again, Habakkuk's looking around at his Jewish neighbors. These are supposed to be the people of God. How are they living? He sees violence in verse 2. Iniquity and destruction, violence, strife, and contention in verse 3. He says the law is paralyzed, so justice isn't going forth. When it does go forth, it's going forth perverted. And this is apparently not new because he says, How long shall I cry to you for help and you will not hear? He's been calling out to God about these issues that he's seeing about this violence. And he's frustrated. And really what he's asking God here is, Why aren't you doing something about this? Why are you letting your people live in such sin? And amazingly, this time, out of the many times Habakkuk has apparently prayed, God did something he's never done when I've asked him questions. He actually answered. God responded, and we can see that starting in verse 5. The Lord responds and says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So the Lord responded to Habakkuk's question. Habakkuk's asking, God, why aren't you doing something about all of this sin that I see around me? And God's response is, I'm doing something. I am doing something. And he says, not only am I doing something, I'm doing something you wouldn't even believe. We're going to read a little bit about what it is that God is doing, starting in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose, God, whose own might is their God. So again, Habakkuk's looking out, seeing violence all around him, seeing sin, and he's saying, God, why aren't you doing something? God responds and says, I am doing something. You wouldn't even believe what I'm doing. What is he doing? He's bringing in the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the Babylonians. And they're going to come in. And what kind of people are the Chaldeans? God acknowledges it. They're violent. They come for violence. They're going to come in and they're going to be violent. And they're going to take you as captives. And at the very end, they're going to walk away from this experience. And they're going to say, we're gods. Now, is that the kind of people you usually expect that God is going to use in his plans? When we say, you know, God loves you and has a, a plan for your life, is this the sort of thing you're expecting? I don't know what Habakkuk was expecting when he's praying that God would end the violence, but it wasn't this. And you can tell that because Habakkuk makes a second complaint, in, starting in verse 12. Here's what he says. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You, 
who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So if you're catching Habakkuk's response here, again, Habakkuk's saying, God, why aren't you doing something? God responds, I am doing something. I'm bringing the Babylonians in to take you into captivity. And he says, what? He's got two main complaints, I think. The first is that God is taking the Babylonians, who were an evil Gentile people, and he's going to bring them in to conquer the Jews, who are the people of God. And for Habakkuk, that seems to go against God's character. He points it out in two places. He says, are you not from everlasting? So aren't you an eternal God? And then he says, you who are of purer eyes to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked man swallows up the more righteous than, than he? So again, he's looking at the Babylonians who are more wicked than the Jews. And he says, God, that seems outside of your character. How could you use a more wicked people to judge a more righteous people? He also says in there, we will not die. I think he's also appealing not only to God's character here, but he's also appealing to God's covenant. So he knows that God's made promises to the people of Israel that he's promised to keep for forever. So then he hears that God's going to bring in the Babylonians and take them captive. That doesn't make any sense to him. Now I want you to notice here that Habakkuk is not being a skeptic. I once heard a famous atheist, I don't remember who it was, it was one of those writing books and speaking to big groups of people type atheists, and he said, I expect that God would be at least as compassionate as me. That's how he looks at God. That's not Habakkuk. Habakkuk's not putting himself over God as a judge. Habakkuk is actually questioning in faith because he's questioning based on the character of who God is and based on the covenant. He's saying, God, I don't get it. You are a good God. You are a pure God. You are a righteous God. How are you going to use a wicked instrument in order to judge a less wicked people? One commentator said that it's not a weak faith, but a perplexed faith that torments Habakkuk. In other words, Habakkuk saying to God, I know your character. I know the covenant you made with your people. So how could you do this? Habakkuk trusted God but he didn't understand what was going on. Have you guys ever felt that way? Maybe you read something in the Bible and you're, I don't understand why God would do that or, or maybe there's something happening right now that you don't understand what God's doing. That's how Habakkuk felt. And we get another response from God. So the second question, you go, you, Habakkuk's saying, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? God says, I am doing something. I'm bringing in the Babylonians and they're terrible. And uh, Habakkuk says, how could you do that? Aren't you a righteous God? And then you get this verse here. It's a, it's a popular verse, one that we've all heard many times, down in chapter 2, verse 4. Start, actually, we'll start in verses 2 through 3. He gives a little introduction to it. So before we get to that, in verses 2 and 3, he says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. So God's now speaking into Habakkuk's fear, speaking into his perplexity. He doesn't understand what God's doing. And he says, a little introduction to the vision he's going to give him. Write this down. 
Make it plain so that people can take it around and show it to other people. For, the, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. So this hasn't happened yet, but it, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God said, I'm going to do something. Not just what's going to happen with the Babylonians, but there's going to be even more. And if it feels like it's not coming, just wait for it. And what I think Habakkuk is starting to learn at this point is that God is not like us. God's not like Habakkuk. And he points out, God points out one way in which God is not like us at all. He says, it hastens to it, it will not lie. God isn't like us because God never lies. So God says, I'm going to tell you something's going to happen right now, and it's definitely going to happen because I don't lie. And he tells him to write it down. I appreciate this as a Bible translator. We work with a primarily oral people. They've actually never written anything down before. And we're going in and we're, we're teaching them literacy so they can read their own language. And we're writing down the Bible that we're translating. And this is one of the reasons we do it. Because over and over and over again in the Bible, God speaks to Israel, who is a primarily oral culture, probably had more writing than, than uh, the Kwakum had. But he says, write it down. He wants people to know what's going to happen. And not just the people who are hearing the message for the first time. He wants us to know what he did. And he wants us to be able to see that he didn't lie. He wants us to be able to see that he's going to do everything that he said he was going to do. And in verse 4, this begins the vision for uh, Habakkuk. This is what God was wanting him to see. In verse 4, he's telling us, he says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It's a little disorienting because he uses a pronoun there. His soul is puffed up. It's not upright with him. Who's he talking about? He's actually talking about the Babylonians. Follow the argument again. Habakkuk makes a complaint to God. God, I'm seeing violence all around me. Why aren't you doing something? God says, I am doing something. You wouldn't even believe it. I'm sending in the Babylonians. Habakkuk says, but they're horrible. They're terrible, violent people. God now responds and says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He's he's saying, that's right. I am using a sinful people. These are idolaters, people who even think themselves are gods. And I am using that. But then what does he say? The righteous shall live by faith. What does that mean in this context? What, What is God saying to Habakkuk here? You guys have probably heard this verse before, but probably not in Habakkuk. Maybe you have in Habakkuk. But normally when we reference this verse, it's either in Romans, Galatians, or Hebrews. Romans 1.17 is probably the most popular where Paul says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the 1500s, there was a, a Catholic monk who encountered this verse and was perplexed by it and wrestled through it. And what he primarily didn't understand here was the idea of being righteous, this Catholic monk, you guys, have, you know him, Martin Luther, he struggled with this idea of being righteous. He was actually mad at God, he said, because he wanted to be righteous, but he just couldn't get there. It was like he was struggling with this prosperity gospel stuff. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, but I don't know the righteousness of God. And what he came to learn was that that's not how God's righteousness comes. It's more like what happened with Abraham. He believed and God counted it to him as faith. And so... Because of Luther, we were able to, we've been able to engage with this verse and understand that we can be righteous before God, even though we're still sinners. It's not the prosperity gospel. It's not a checklist. But we can be righteous because of what Christ has done. But as much as he focused on the righteousness of God, I want to take a moment and just focus on the word faith. Uh, one of the other barriers to the Kwakum having God's word is they just don't have a ton of words. 
So they don't have a word for wheat or grapes or wagon or chariot or all these things that we encounter in the Bible. And then there's these big words like faith and grace and hope. They don't have words for that either. And what do you do with that, you know? How do you translate the Bible when you don't have a word for faith? But what it's actually caused me to do is really wrestle in myself, what do I mean by faith? What do I understand when I see that the righteous shall live by faith? And so I've struggled with it, and, and they have a word in Kwakum for believe. But if I say, do you believe in God? For the most part, what does that mean? It usually just means, do you believe in God? Like, there's, you believe that there's a God that exists, right? There's something missing from there. There's something different about the word faith than the word believe. And as I've been wrestling through it in this passage, as I've been wrestling through it with the Kwakum, I've come to understand that what is really happening is that the word faith here, it means trust. So follow the argument. Habakkuk says, God, why aren't you doing something about all this violence around me? God responds and says, I am doing something. I'm bringing the Babylonians. Habakkuk says, how could you do that? You're a pure God, a righteous God. How could you use these evil people? God says, you're right. They are an evil people. Do you trust me? The righteous will live by faith. Trust me. Now, he doesn't require of Habakkuk 100% blind faith, just like we have a whole book full of things that lead us to trust in who God is. He reveals some more things throughout the rest of, of the book of Habakkuk through this vision that Habakkuk is seeing, giving Habakkuk the strength so that he knows that he can trust God. You see it starting in chapter 2, verse 8. There we go. Oh, I skipped it. I did it again. I'll let you do it. Go ahead. There we go. So chapter 2, verse 8 says, this is actually God, part of the vision. He's now speaking to the Babylonians. And he says, Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So the Babylonians, again, they were this group of people, they just kind of popped out out of nowhere. Uh, Assyria was this big, strong nation that had, uh, that had defeated all over the place. Babylon just kind of pops out of nowhere and starts defeating everybody. And they just go in and they, they're violent and they kill people and take slaves. They end up defeating Assyria too. I mean, big powerhouse. And what does God say is going to happen? All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. So God is telling Habakkuk through this vision, he's not going to let this go on forever. Even though the Babylonians were, were this huge powerhouse that were destroying, God's not turning a blind eye to that. He's not going to just let them live like that forever. In verse 14, if you can switch to the next verse, he gives them some more hope. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk's looking out around the people, at the people around him, and he's only seeing violence and injustice. And God says, there's going to come, be, come a day where you can stand and look out this window and everywhere you see, the only thing you're going to see is the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. He says, it's going to be like the waters cover the sea. What part of the sea is not covered with water? That's what a sea is. It has water everywhere. The earth is going to be like that one day. You could go anywhere on this earth, the new one, and all you will see is the knowledge of the glory of God. Isn't that a great hope that God is giving to him? In verse 20, he tells him something else. He says, But the Lord is in his temple. Let all of the earth keep silence before him. 
So God never specifically tells Habakkuk that he's going to bring the Jews back into the promised land. He never tells them that there will be people that will, will continue on among the, the, the Jewish people. Uh, he tells other prophets that, but not Habakkuk. He never answers it exactly, but he says, I'm on my throne. And really what Habakkuk should be doing is putting his hand over his mouth and being silent and watching what God is going to do. So God never tells him exactly what's going to happen, but Habakkuk knows what's going to happen. Skip down in chapter 3 and go to the next slide, starting in verse 17. This is Habakkuk's final response to God's vision, to what he saw. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and he will make me tread on high places. Do you hear the faith there? Do you hear the trust? Basically, I think what's happened now is, like I said, I think Habakkuk was seeing things. I think God allowed him to see what this was going to look like. The Babylonians were going to come in and just kill and destroy. He's looking out at this vision, and he's seeing the fig trees not blossoming, there's no fruit on their vines, their fields have failed, the flocks have been cut off. These are agricultural people. They're used to getting all of their food from the fields and from their flocks. He's looking out at a vision of a land with none of it. And how does he respond? I will take joy in the God of my what? Because you say, the God of my salvation. He knew that this was going to come true. He knew that God was going to do what he said he'd do because God doesn't lie. He knew it was going to be horrible, beyond imagination, and he trusted that God would save him. That is not the prosperity gospel. That's the gospel. It's the gospel that we worship a God who doesn't do what we'd expect him to do, and that's a good thing. And he was a perplexed man who didn't understand why God chose to do it the way that he did, but he trusted in God. We had the opportunity to speak these messages, not through the book of Habakkuk, but it's just everywhere in the Bible. God doing things we wouldn't expect him to do and always working it for the good of his people. And we've been able to see how the Lord has used this. The Lord used his word to change Habakkuk's heart. And to give him hope in the midst of this really rough situation. We've also seen God do the same thing in the life of one main family in Cameroon during this last term. Um, this, uh, we mentioned Mommy. We were here in June and we did a little presentation. We mentioned Mommy. I want to tell you a little bit more about her and how God has been using these messages. The message that God doesn't do what we expect him to do, but that we can trust him. Um, I told you a bit about Mommy, but I'll, I'll do a review. We first met Mommy on our first term, and she was a very aggravating person. So she would follow us around whenever we went to the market and just be like, why are you buying from them and not from me? You know, she would, whenever we go on a trip, she'd say, what gifts did you bring me back from this trip? And we're responding and saying, we're not friends. You know, I only buy gifts for my friends. Um, and God did this really cool thing. He took Mommy and put her into the house that's right behind our house. So now not only is Mommy a frustrating person, but she's just always there. <laughs> and she didn't just, just always want to ask us why we weren't buying from her now. She wanted to come and work in our house. 
And uh, she's like, I'll do dishes, or, or I'll clean, or I'll make food. And of all of the people in all of the world, she was one of the people I wanted the least to work in my house. <laughs> because she was hard to be with. Uh, but one night, again, she's living just behind our house, and we hear uh, a, a fight going on. And um, I think I told you last time we were here, the fights are just very common in Cameroon. That's how they deal with conflict. Uh, a lot of times it doesn't end in violence, but a lot of times it does, and uh, people get hurt. And we're always trying to judge whether or not we should go out and try to be, break up the fight. We didn't go out that night, but we woke up in the morning to find out that mommy's father had been murdered uh, by her stepson, by her stepbrother, I'm sorry, his stepson. And um, we went to the funeral and got to, to talk with her, and she really clung to Stacy during the funeral, and we, we kind of experienced through that, that that mommy really didn't have friends, people who, she, she, who really cared for her and really loved her, but she felt really loved by us, which is funny because we weren't trying really hard, you know? Um, <laughs> And it was through that experience that we decided that we would uh, let her come and do some things at her house, uh, you know, so she could have a little bit of an income. Um, she was pregnant at the time with a little boy in the picture. Um, they named him David. Um, and uh, as she was working for us, Stacy said, you can work for us, but we're going to do a Bible study every day, and we're going to just talk about who God is and, and the gospel. And an amazing thing happened. It took some time, but mommy just believed she just believed everything that she heard. She's just like, well, if it's in the Bible, then I believe it. I just trust that that's who God is. I trust that he's doing what he says he's going to do. And because of that, she ended up leading her boyfriend to Christ, and they were both baptized uh, down in the river by our church. Um, because of the conviction from the Word of God, Kwakun people don't get married. Um, but because of the conviction from the Word of God, uh, not long after that, they got married um, because they wanted to honor the Lord with their lives. And it's just been really encouraging to, to watch God, oops, wait, there we go, but to watch God move in mommy and co's life and to bring them to a place where they trust him. And uh, it was one amazing thing that happened at one point is that mommy, um, she started reading uh, the word of God on her own in French. She's able to read it in French. And she, she starts seeing who the character of God and what God loves. And one time she came to Stacy and said, hey, I think I should go visit my stepbrother in prison. Her stepbrother ended up getting put in prison for the murder. She actually testified against him. Um, but she said, I, I feel like if I go and visit him there, that it would be like visiting Jesus. Um, which is really neat to hear. And uh, the prisons there are just miserable. We've heard from prisoners that they, they, they're eager to see cockroaches when they're in prison so they can eat because they're so hungry. Uh, they just really don't care for prisoners there. And so she, she knew that he would really suffer uh, in prison if nobody brought him food, if nobody cared for him. So she started going. We, were help, we would help her get there. It was about two hours away, so we'd help her get there. And as she's doing this, as she's serving her stepbrother, her family hates her. Her remaining aunts and uncles and cousins, they find out that she's doing this and they say, you're taking the side of the murderer. You're, you're standing against your own father. So they disown her and say, we're not going to talk to you anymore. One of her cousins tried to hit her with a motorcycle. They were just very angry with her. Again, I want you to think for a second, what is it like if all you understand of the Bible is, is the prosperity gospel? What's happening to mommy? It doesn't make any sense. She's trying to honor the Lord with her life. And mommy's just this baby Christian. How would you respond to that? As time went on, um, about a year and a half ago, mommy and co. found out that mommy was pregnant again. Uh, and they were excited about it. 
Um, this is this will be their second child um, together, and they were nervous because they're very very poor, and adding another mouth into the family. But kids are just seen as a blessing in Cameroon, and it was it was really great. They were excited. We bought baby clothes together, talked about names. But then about the 39th week um, uh, in her pregnancy, mommy started to bleed, and so we took her to the medical clinic. And to be honest with you, the medical clinics there are not much better than the prisons. Uh, the main, I think, core issue is the workers there, the doctors and nurses, they don't care for the patients. And so they, they treat them very, very poorly. And I don't know if it's because of their neglect or if it was just going to happen this way, but the baby died. And because she was so far along, they sent her to another village to have a C-section to, to remove the baby. And um, it was just horrible. She said they, they strapped her down into the, 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 sur- the surgery room, operating room, and um, they, she was conscious for at least part of the operation. She experienced all of that pain. And after that, you know, she had to stay in the hospital for weeks. When she finally got home, she wasn't able to do much because she was still healing, and she was enduring all of that pain without having a baby, the, the baby that makes you forget about the pain. How do you handle that? How do you respond to that? When all you've ever heard your whole life is that if you do what God wants, he'll bless you, he'll make you healthy, he'll make you wealthy. And now she got married, she got baptized, she's seeking to honor the Lord by visiting her stepbrother, and and now she's lost her child. How would you respond to that? We asked mommy, wasn't asking specifically how she was responding to this. We were just asking how she was responding to hearing the word of God in her own language. Um, right before we left, we did an interview. And I want you to see how she responds to that question. So if you didn't catch it, um, after this all happened, losing the baby, uh, one of mommy's friends went to share the news of, of the loss of the baby with um, mommy's uh, family, her aunts and uncles that had uh, betrayed or abandoned her. And uh, this friend thought they would be excited because they hated her that much. Um, But instead they felt compassion. And it was because of that loss of the child that mommy has been restored to in her relationship with her family. It was because of the loss of her father that she became a Christian. And she looks back on these things and says, God uses evil for good. How can you respond that way? This was maybe two, two months after this had all happened. It's only because she trusts God. And it's only because she trusts God through what she knows of who he is based on what she's learned in the word of God. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God that I'm asking that he would make us like mommy. But before I do that, I just want to ask you, do you trust God? Do you trust him when you don't understand what he did in the Bible Do you trust him when you don't understand what's happening in your life? I think there's a lot of pressure in America right now to be ashamed of of our God, especially the God of the Old Testament. Not long ago, there was a pastor who said that Christians, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because that God is not the same God that we worship today. But that's not true. And what I'm learning through my friends, my Kwakum friends, is we need the Old Testament so we can know who God is so that we can trust him. And I, 
I don't know about you guys. I don't know where you're at in your lives. Maybe things have been going pretty well overall. But there may be times in your lives where you've struggled and where you've asked that question, God, what are you doing? Or why did you do that? And I want to encourage you. I don't think it's always a bad question. I don't think it was a bad question for Habakkuk. Mary asked a similar question when she was uh, told she was going to give birth to Christ. It's okay to ask that question. But the question is, when you ask it, are you trusting God? Because God isn't like us. The things that he does are almost never what we would expect him to do. But that's a really good thing. Because God isn't like us. And he doesn't do the things that we do. And everything that he does is good. And everything that happens, every single thing that happens, we know will be worked for our good if we love him and if we trust him. The ultimate example of this is, of course, when God looked down on the earth and he saw that we were all rebelling, not just Israel, everybody, all of us were rebelling against him, hating him, worshiping idols, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. What was his response to that? He sent his son to be murdered by us so that we could be saved. Is that what you would have chosen? That's not even a method I would have thought of. But God did it and it was good. And it resulted in the salvation of many of us here, of people in Cameroon and people all over the world. So the question for us is, do we trust God? He's not going to do what you expect him to do. Do you trust him? I told you we don't really have a word for, for uh, faith in the Kwakum language. Right near the end, we, we were really wrestling through this with our translation team. And we found out that they do have a little phrase that they use. Um, and they say, um, to give your heart to someone. And that's kind of how they communicate that they trust someone. And I like it. I, like, I don't know if we're going to use it, but I like it because the idea here is you have this really soft and fleshy organ, and if you're going to give that to someone else, that's a lot of trust. My eldest sister, Heather, had to have numerous um, open-heart surgeries, and my parents had to trust the doctor because he was going to be sticking knives in that organ and cutting it. They had to trust that he knew what he was doing and that he was going to do it for the good of my sister. Do you give your heart to God? Do you trust him? He is good. He is always good. And something's going to happen, and this is a promise I will give you. If you do trust God, when you're going through those things that you don't understand, you will never be disappointed. Did you see mommy's face? She was radiant. And she was radiant because she trusted the Lord. And she knew no matter what she was going through, he would turn it for her good. As I said uh, earlier, it's, it's a bittersweet sweet thing to be here and to, to be in this building. This will be the, not your last time to be in the building, but my last time to be in this building. And uh, I feel home here in this building. Um, and as I was kind of thinking about those emotions, I was also thinking about the, the song that we sing at Christmas time, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, it's a funny song that we sing because it's, it's a song from people in Habakkuk's position, you know, asking for their Messiah to come. But he's already come, right? It's funny we sing it, but in reality, I think we all feel it too. Because even though we're, we're, we know Christ has already come, he's already incarnated, he's already died for our sins, we're still waiting, aren't we? 
And that's the kind of trust that mommy has. You don't have trust if somebody's already given you something. Trust is a hope. It's hoping in something that is to come in the future. And we have a hopeful joy when we trust in God because we know that he's good and he will always do what he says he's going to do and everything that he's promised for us is good. Let's pray that God would give us the heart that mommy has to trust the Lord. Father, I thank you so much for mommy. I just thank you for her faith. I just thank you that she trusts you. And sometimes she, she, she sees the things that you're doing through the suffering and through the difficulty. Sometimes she doesn't, but she trusts you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be like mommy, that we would trust you the way that she does, and then that we would also know that joy when, when we lose our job and we don't understand and when we lose our children. I pray you'd help us to know that joy that only comes through trust. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.